Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Megan Riepenhoff. She's included in Watershed, an exhibition at the University of Michigan Museum of Art that considers the interconnected histories, present lives, and imagined futures of the Great Lakes region. Watershed features work by 15 artists, six of whom were commissioned to make new work for the show. Riepenhoff's 2022, this is going to be a long title and you're going to hear it again, Waters of the Americas, EPA ID, NYD 9805924970, Eastman Kodak's Emissions B, Confluence of the Genesee River and Lake Ontario, Rochester, New York, March 12th, 2022, is among those commissions. The exhibition was curated by Jennifer Fries and is on view through October 23rd. Riepenhoff's work foregrounds the chemical processes from which pictures are and have been made since the 19th century and brings those processes into contact with nature, including rivers, lakes, and oceans. Her work has been included in exhibitions at SFMOMA, the High Museum of Art, the Portland Art Museum, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, and plenty more. This September, Radius and Yossi Milo Gallery will publish Riepenhoff's new book titled Ice, and Yossi Milo will present related work in its New York space this September. IndieBound and Amazon offer the book for about $60. On the second segment, Michelle White on Nikki DeSant Fall. But first, Megan Riepenhoff, after the break. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art presents Maya Lin, A Study of Water, a solo exhibition that brings together a selection of the internationally acclaimed artists' large-scale sculptural interpretations of water. The exhibition features a site-responsive installation using tens of thousands of polished glass marbles that map waterways onto the walls and floor of the gallery. Maya Lin, A Study of Water, is on view only at the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, April 21st through September 4th. Admission is free. Reserve your tickets now at virginiamocha.org. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash leandroehrlich. And we're back. Megan Riepenhoff, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I want to start in kind of an unusual place, which is with the title of one of the works in the show at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. Because I think that by understanding each element of the title, we'll kind of get a broad introduction to your entire practice. So I'm going to read the entire title, which is going to take a moment. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then I will break down the title bit by bit. So the, the full title of the work, which will be on manpodcast.com, is Waters of the Americas, colon, EPA, as in Environmental Protection Agency, ID, NYD 980-592-497, comma, Eastman Kodak's Emissions B, parentheses, Confluence of the Genesee River and Lake Ontario, Rochester, New York, 03, i.e. March 12, 12, 2022. So that's a very photo world title. Well done. So let's start from the beginning of the title. What does Waters of the Americas mean? What is the, what is the project you're referencing with the beginning of the title? So Waters of the Americas is a project that I put, put into motion when I got the Guggenheim Fellowship back in 2018. And I had been making the literal drift work for six-ish years at that point. I was also working in the Ecotone series and um, working with falling water in that case, precipitation. And I decided to shift my focus to work in places that were impacted by human interventions. So I got really interested in encountering waters that we had shifted through industry that were changing through climate change. For example, I went to the Great Salt Lake and worked at that body of water, which is fascinating and, and kind of terrifying. We divided the lake into parts with a railroad causeway, and that resulted in two discrete bodies of water forming where, where one had previously existed. So in this case, I had this urge to make work at waters impacted specifically by photography. And what better place to do that than where the Kodak factory used to exist? So there are there are two parts of that. The first part is the EPA ID number. And you're asking yourself or the listener is asking him, her, themselves, why does a Eastman Kodak facility have an EPA ID number? And that has to do with it being a cleanup site. Exactly. So Kodak made, if I recall, four different Superfund sites throughout New York and New Jersey. During the peak of Kodak's production, the cancer rates in Rochester were some of the highest in the nation. And I wanted to work at a waterway that was heavily impacted by photography. I think it's important that we self-implicate in the things that we engage in in life. You know, photography has been used as a tool for protecting landscapes and showing social injustice. It's been very useful for making positive change, a lot of people would argue. And then Kodak created these four Superfund sites in New York and New Jersey and caused a, a pretty massive amount of environmental destruction in the process of making the materials we use. So I wanted to, to entitle the piece with these sort of cues to the viewer that there's this whole backstory of the industry of photography that I'm engaging with and the way it has shaped our environment. So let me fill in some geography. The Kodak facility referenced in your title is pretty much exactly halfway between downtown Rochester and Lake Ontario. And the Genesee River flows into Lake Ontario. The site is at 1669 Lake Avenue in Rochester, if anybody wants to call it up on, on Google Earth. And you will see that it's about 2,000 acres. At least that's what the EPA cleanup status form says. 
and you will see that it is still in use. Parts of it are just empty gray emptiness. Those are presumably the parts of the facility that needed and have been cleaned up um, or where cleanup is, is in process. But it's still an active industrial site. And it's right there, you know, a stone's throw, like literally a stone's throw from the Genesee River. Was it important to you? Is it important to you that, you know, there are multiple bodies of water implicated here? You know, that the the pollution from the Kodak site isn't just of a river, but that it, the river is connected to a lake. And indeed, you might call it a Great Lake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it, it it is important to me because I think that the human tendency to sort of delineate and separate out portions of land is not something that applies to water. Water is always mingling together and connecting through all kinds of channels. And so, yes, the Genesee River was impacted, and yes, the lake was impacted, and yes, all of the surrounding land was also impacted by Kodak. And so I wanted to speak to the way that that problem that we made as photographers that our industry made is is flowing and moving and and not restricted to just one place but it it actually it grows bigger as it as it spreads i want to ask another question about kind of your personal physical engagement with the photographic stuff industry but before i do this is probably a good point to ask you to kind of give the entry level introduction to how you make a work. You are not using a lens. You are not using a housing. The, the the works in the UMA show and indeed a lot of, if not nearly all of your works these days are cyanotypes. How do you make them? I work in direct physical engagement with the landscape. I submerge pieces of cyanotype coated paper into bodies of water. I work with falling water my most recent series of work, Ice, and the piece at UMA is an ice piece. I'm engaging freezing landscapes. And so there's an incredibly tactile, physical way that I make these pieces. It's a very active process. And you're right that typically the only camera on site is recording whatever waves are spraying on me while I'm trying to wrangle a piece of paper in the wind. Yeah, and there are great pictures of that all over the internet. <laughs> yeah, they're great memories too. <laughs> so there is some chemical process happening on w- within the making of, of of your work, and we don't need to go into all of that because while I know photo nerds love nothing more than talking process, you know, I, I, I don't know that we need to do that. But are you using any of the sorts of chemicals that would have produced at that Eastman Kodak plant or other similar facilities and where is the intentionality in using or not using such material? When I first started the project Literal Drift, which was not yet entitled that, I was using expired sea print paper from both Fuji and Kodak. And pretty quickly I could tell that it wasn't quite the right material for me for a few different reasons. One of those being that I really wanted to reference Anna Atkins images. Anna Atkins, the great pioneer of cyanotypes, British. Yes. And, and, you know, where Atkins was making photograms with specimen from the shoreline, I wanted to make the shoreline, both the subject and the process of the pictures that I made. 
another reason that I wound up switching to cyanotype is because it doesn't have the heavy metal problem that black and white and color photo papers have. Cyanotype's metal that is sensitive to light is iron. And so I'm not actually working with silver materials. And part of the big cleanup that's going on around the Kodak site is just extracting silver from like the first 18 inches of sediment where that, that heavy metal has settled in and become a problem. Is it, was it important to you that within the context of American industry, iron reached the East Coast by traveling through the Great Lakes? That was not something I was thinking about, but in relationship to that, and I think an interesting kind of parallel, I was thinking a lot about how we were extracting from the Owens Valley in California and then taking those ingredients to Rochester, New York, and then making film and materials with them and then sending them back to Hollywood where movies were being made. And this was a really fun conversation that I learned about this whole kind of traversing the nation in support of image making by a friend of mine who wrote a book called Hollywood's Dirtiest Secrets. Hunter Vaughn wrote this book all about eco-materialism in cinema. And it became really important for me to think about eco-materialism in my work too. So we had a, a pretty fun exchange around sort of how the East Coast and West Coast have both participated in this creation of both images, cinema, and problematic environmental issues. You mentioned a moment ago how you physically make the work by, you know, being knee-deep in water and, and river, lake, ocean, etc. Have you learned how to manipulate your interactions with nature and how you move paper through water or how you stand and where you stand in water? Have you learned how to manipulate those interactions with nature to create the image you wanted to create that you want to create? Or is there like 80% of chance there, 90% of chance there? It's funny. I've never put a percentage on it, but I'm thinking maybe 60% I can kind of control what's going on. <laughs> ah, so you knew that right away or you've learned? I've learned. I mean, at the beginning, it's not like there was an instruction book on how to make the kind of images I was making, right? I just... Yeah, I was just going for it and trying something I'd never seen done before. And at the beginning, it was a lot of chaos. I mean, prints getting pulled out of my hands, pulled out into the ocean. I was having surfers return them. You know, definitely prints getting torn through by the fierce Northern California waves. And then as I started to understand what kind of shapes different interactions would make, I started adjusting my my participation in the collaboration with the water and with the landscape. That said, I just this past December was on a, a lengthy expedition making ice work and encountered almost all of the first round of totally chaotic accidents that I encountered when I first started making the work. And I just laughed and kind of threw my hands to the sky like, Yes, this work is a, a delicate collaboration with an environment that is wild. So I kind of have two questions about that. So what did you learn you can control? What, what, what did you learn that was an image you could end up leaving on the paper, if you will? So I can control things like timing, decisions on how far I go into the water. Do I bury the prints, hold them down with rocks, stuff like that. 
And you know what images you'll get on the paper from doing each of those things? Well, I know, for example, that the amount that I take the paper into the water determines if there is a horizon, how high that horizon is, et cetera. But <laughs> waves don't always agree with where the horizon line should be. So I sometimes have an image in mind and then a wave will suck the entire piece of paper out of my hand or splash up quite high. And so I, I sort of find that whenever I'm getting too constricted or too structured in how I want to make an image, then I feel like the landscape answers back with that, with that wildness, with that desire to, to lose control and, and to surrender to what's going on at that time. So taking a work like Ecotone number 604, which is a work you made in Aspen, Colorado in 2019, I believe with snow, snow falling, in fact, and melting icicles. And so it's this work that has these crystalline patterns that vaguely recall, not vaguely, really recall the shapes and patterns you might find in leaves. How much of that do you know you're going to get? And, or, or maybe a better question is how much of that do you care that you're going to get? Or are you just interested in the process? Oftentimes when I'm printing and with this piece in particular, things occur that I'm not expecting. So I was hoping for a kind of reference to a mountainous landscape in this image because I was in a mountainous landscape, but then snow started falling and icicles started dripping. And these are things that I have radically no control over. I'm oftentimes excited by when an image goes quote wrong, when things happen that are unexpected. And I feel in that moment, that's when the collaboration really, really sings because I'm not working in isolation. I'm not working alone out there. I'm working with these elements that are going to show up in unpredictable ways. Ah, so this is interesting. Okay. So this one really does look a lot like a mountainous landscape with a cloud, a white cloud and the crystalline leaf like patterns are in the mountain and the cloud looks like spray from the ocean, even though there's no ocean, obviously in Colorado kind of hovering above the mountain. So you knew you were going to get a mountain cloudscape. I knew I was going to get mountains. I did not know that cloudscape. That oh. came as a gift from the clouds, quite literally. <laughs> so that's the snowfall. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. And, and so in doing all of that, from the place, from doing it in that specific place to shooting for a mountainscape, are you interested in the, you know, very long art history of photography and mountains in the American West and perhaps the French Alps and wherever else you might be interested in? Or are you just not interested in that history? I wouldn't say that that is a history that I spend a lot of time in. I am interested in the human love for and tendency to photograph the landscape and oftentimes to photograph it as though it is something discreet from our bodies, something that we are observing and documenting and kind of couching neatly within a rectilinear frame. And then I want to push back against that photographic tendency and go, right, but what if the actual landscape itself was inscribing into the photochemistry? So a much more tactile, collaborative, connective way of making images of landscapes. So any way you look at it, there's some chance here. And you are obviously fine with the element of chance being within the work. Was that 
a place you had to get to or were you from the beginning of working in these modes, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, fine with it? I think I might have to get to it every single time I print. It's something that comes and goes. I, I, I both love it and find myself pushing back against my urge to make a formally compelling image and to, to kind of do it right. Like to make the picture that I think I want to make. And then there's this beautiful moment where, yeah, the, the water pulls the print differently or the wind kicks up and everything gets torn in half. And then I remember that the most interesting images come from a process of dropping expectations. And, and I found that when I worked in the color darkroom too, I used to make color photograms that sort of referenced um, like a cosmic space or like what might be happening inside of our cells. And in that space, I was working in pitch blackness with a, you know, a backpack full of kind of domestic debris that I would bring in. And it was like a blind sculpting. And I think that practice of working in a pitch black space and trying to arrive at compositions opened up my mind to to the joy of chance in image making. And that's not to say that it's easy every time it happens, but it is a practice in my art making that I think yields my most compelling images. So then is it ultimately the image that makes you okay with chance or is there some art historical permission, you know, through Dada and after that makes you think, oh, if it worked there, it works for me too. I think it's more the image in my work. It's so exciting to see a picture that's born of like an utter lack of control. To me, that also speaks to the relationship with the environment and with the landscape that I always want to bow or nod to. You know, I think we have so much, we spend so much energy as humans trying to control our environments and shape it this way and make it that way. And the process of the ecosystems around us are so utterly much more massive than we are. And I love nodding to that, that truth that we exist in this kind of massive mystery. And we're like these little beings going on our way, trying to navigate through it. We just talked about a work that feels very representational, Mountains Clouds. But most of your work is happily, oh God, I'm going to regret this metaphor as soon as I say it, swimming in the sea of abstraction. <laughs> God, I am so sorry. <laughs> I'll forgive it. I'll let it go. <laughs> thank, thank you. But, but the point I'm badly trying to make is that you're obviously very happy with abstraction. You're not trying to put mountains in anywhere close to every image. Were you at the beginning of this, you know, 15 or whatever year body of work, interested in abstraction, accepting of abstraction, reaching for abstraction? I guess I'm asking, how, how would you define your relationship with, with abstraction? So interested in it as a viewer and interested in this possibility that things could elicit or represent or allude to other things, other experiences, oftentimes not tangible. My work is formally appears abstract in a lot of ways, but I'm going to borrow a term here from Wally Beshti. It's actually hyper literal. The shape that you see, the wave, the 
flow, whatever you see on the paper, that is a quite very literal inscription from an element in the landscape. So the little dots that you see that kind of look like maybe stars or like pieces of the cosmos scattered throughout a sort of blue form. I mean, that's actual sand from the beach. So they are, they're kind of dancing with things we associate with abstraction, but they're totally literal in both their making and what they present in terms of like, this is a wave, this is a piece of the ocean. The ice pieces are maybe most exemplary of this kind of very literal picture that I'm talking about. The crystals that you see in the paper embedded in the chemistry that is actually from water freezing on the paper. It's a it's an incredibly specific moment where water changed state and where water responded to debris on the paper. For example, a speck of dust, one of my dog's pieces of fur that falls on the print while I'm working. Those crystals are all forming in direct response to that environment and then quite literally etching into the chemistry. If this were an oral history, I'd make you give your dog's name and it's not, Oso. but but we still want your dog's name. Yeah, Mr. Bear or Oso, he goes by both. <laughs> I, I, I love that your dog is not named Stieglitz <laughs> or, or, or some such. You're describing there a material and chemical process happening and making the work. You, you started out as, you know, where undergrads tend to start out, which is, you know, with the simple stuff, you know, using a 35 millimeter camera, pointing at things and painting and, and pressing click. When and why did the chemistry become more interesting to you than the lens and the button? So I always love to tell people that when I was in undergraduate, when I was getting my education, there was no digital course required. It just was not part of the vocabulary of photography yet. And so, yeah, getting close. In my last year of college, they had introduced an optional digital course for photography makers. And I was really rooted in the traditional processes in the medium. You know, I was hanging out in dark rooms all the time and in color dark rooms all the time. And I moved out to California to pursue my MFA. And after completing that, I wound up at the Banff Center for the Arts in Canada. And I had this sense that I really needed to break free in my practice and to try something radically different. And I started making these like really terrible sculptures and they were like supposed to look like planets and parts of the cosmos and the, the great mystery in which we exist, which I've already referenced. And at the end of about like two weeks of making those sculptures, I realized they were total flops and I needed to hide them. I mean, I actually needed them out of my site in my studio so I just took them down to the color dark room where I was working and I put them all on the enlarger and I left them there. And the next time I went to print, I just started engaging those materials in photograms. And it was this fascinating moment, which photography can sometimes do, where a totally boring, you know, uninteresting object can become this transcendent thing where all of a sudden you're making pictures that actually look like the cosmos. And that alchemy that happens in photography, I find that particularly from chemical processes in photography, less so than in 
digital processes. And that sort of solidified my, my love for working in these antiquated processes. And then that naturally led me to cyanotype, which I had studied when I was younger. What is the relationship between that work and that experience and what I think is the earliest work of yours I know of, and that's the surface disruption works, which are kind of a tactile geography of a darkroom space? Yeah, surface disruption was a a series that came from that experience of spending days and hours isolated in a darkroom. And I started to think about what it meant to see in a pitch black space and in a confined pitch black space. And I noticed that when I walked to the color processor, I would run my hand along the wall and I began to know that certain cracks and certain bumps meant I was getting close. I would count my steps so I could navigate. You would call out to other printers in the space like, Megan here walking to the processor. And there was this way that you were like calling out into the darkness with no idea if anyone would respond, if anyone would be there. And so I started thinking of seeing as this multi-sensory experience that involved your auditory response, that involved your finger pads and that tactility. And that inspired me to make rubbings in that darkness where I was pressing the paper into the cracks and the different forms that I found throughout the darkroom space and, and really abrading it and also treating the paper as it's not supposed to be treated. You know, usually we have kind of like a reverence for photographic material. It's expensive. It's precious. We don't want to ding it up. And I really wanted to like subvert that way of thinking about the materials and get very gritty and loose with them. Yeah, those those works sometimes look like the surface of the moon or something you might see through a telescope. And then they're very tactile and that you want to touch them. And they they do maintain a relief in them. You know, despite my best efforts to remove all the de- debris and flatten them out before they go through a color processor, they do retain that subtle relief from where they were rubbed and cracked and forced into shapes. And they are pretty satisfying to touch. Your, your pictures for many years now, so not just the ice pictures, not just, but I mean, across a wide range of your work, it very often looks like it was made with the help of a brush or by pouring paint. Are you interested in there being a visual relationship between your work and painting, photography and painting, photographic process and painting, or is that beyond your intent or interest? It is not something that I intend necessarily. What I do intend is to consider the predetermined boundaries of photography and to utterly disregard those. (laughs) 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 I had a mentor who told me that he made some of his best work by learning all of the rules and then doing everything the opposite way that he was taught. And that really landed with me in my practice more so than thinking about, for example, emulating painting or having a relationship to painting. I think about like, are these pieces that I'm making sort of a conceptual painting or drawing done by the landscape? I think about stuff like that. I, I wonder 
you know, when does it become a painting? When does it stay in the camp of photography? And are these distinction between materials even that useful for us anymore as artists? So I just love to to push the definitions of of how we understand photography to be described and to to play with that. This next question is going to make me sound like a kindergartner, but I'm I'm asking because I'm curious, but I'm also asking it to get to the next question. A lot of your work is necessarily blue because of the process and chemicals that you're using or that you must use. Are, are, are you fine with the color blue? Do you really like the color blue? Are you tired of the color blue? You must have a relationship at this point with the color blue. <laughs> For sure. So growing up, I was brought up Catholic and I spent a lot of time looking at stained glass windows with sunlight coming through them. And during my graduate studies, a friend of mine revealed to me that that almost Eve's Klein blue that we see in stained glass windows, that rich, deep blue, which is kind of echoed in Prussian blue pigment. This friend of mine told me that that blue was used to re- represent darkness becoming illuminated. And I love that in the way that it references how we see, how photography works, and that that really landed with me. And then I also think about the color blue as the way we perceive incredibly vast space, oceans, skies, these places that we can't really occupy for any real period of time, except maybe in images. So those were kind of early ways that I fell in love with the color blue. And then Prussian blue is such an insanely beautiful pigment. I love the color. It, it for me is an, it's a way for the mind to wander in that palette. It's a it's a color that opens up vastness. That is triggering like an art historical memory for me. I mean, there, in the context of European art, I mean, a lot of blue pigment came from Persia, which was were Muslim lands, and so if the if the conceptual idea as the blue is used in say stained glass windows in Catholic churches was the moment of darkness coming into light, boy, that's pretty loaded in terms of where that blue came from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, that's really interesting. Everything you just said about blue is really interesting. And it brings me to the question of inherent vice in your work and how I think you expect the work to change as, as time goes on and as chemistry keeps happening, if you will. How does that embrace of inherent vice coincide, overlap with liking and living in that blue and knowing that it may change, will change. So just to give a little backstory on why I intentionally started working with dynamic images, back in 2012, I was making these prints and simultaneously SFMOMA and a lot of other institutions were having these pretty interesting conversations around the conservation of sea prints and the fact that sea prints were shifting. And quickly, different artists were responding to that in different ways. Some were asking for the institutions to shred the sea prints and replacing them with inkjet prints. Some of them were saying, keep the sea prints, and here is uh, an inkjet print. And then others were saying, well, I think the object and the image are intrinsically linked here, and this material shifts, and that's it. And I'm sure there were other approaches, but those were the ones that I was primarily hearing about. 
And I got really fascinated by the fact that photography has always had the issue of trying to fix and stabilize an image, right, from its earliest inventions. And so looking at these conservation conversations, thinking about sea print shifting, I, I felt like there was this expectation around photography in the hopes that we could make it archival. There was this expectation that it would somehow be exempt from the nature of life itself, which is change. And so I wanted to push back on that convention in photography and intentionally make dynamic images that continue to respond to the environments that they are exposed to over time. And so my images are only partially photochemically processed. And what I adore about that is once I bring them out into the sunlight, once they're out in the environment, it's the immediate change starts happening where they're exposing, there's the collaboration with the environment, things are happening, it's a very active piece. And then I bring it back to my studio and they kind of rest and settle. And at some point, if they go to a collector, if they go tacked up in my bedroom, if they go to an institution, another collaboration begins because how they are housed once they leave my studio continues to determine their form. To me, that is like an illustration of this big picture time, like the way we exist in, in geologic time and change is always happening whether or not we choose to perceive it. And for me, that's one of the most interesting parts about this work is that it has the capacity to show us what we oftentimes want to turn away from and to show us that couched in beauty. So what are some of the ways you've seen the work change over time? So certain collectors of mine have been especially attracted to the dynamism. That's what pulls them in. And so Mm -hmm. they have made choices to put a piece in a south facing window with no glazing. And what's happening there is the piece is getting inundated with UV light, potentially humidity, anything that's going on in that room. And so cyanotype, whether it is fully washed properly, archivally or not, so whether you're doing it the way you're supposed to do it or the way I do it, it has a propensity to change. Pieces that are on display for long periods of time, the Prussian blue will ever so slightly start to reduce to a Prussian white. So they start to get this kind of white, almost film on the surface of the Prussian blue. And then those pieces, when they're put into darkness, like into a drawer, will regain that density. What do you mean? What do you mean by regain that density? The the blue will regain its blueness. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that about this material, it helped me choose the material because it gave me something that was already in existence that I could really like exploit and push and kind of make more visible to an audience. Now, some people put my cyanotypes in frames, like hermetically sealed frames, and they treat them like sea prints. So they're tucked away in a dark room that never receives light. In that case, any change that may be occurring is so imperceptible You might be able to detect it via instrumentation, but it's not going to be something that you're visually noticing. Whereas those people that I mentioned earlier who choose to have the piece unglazed in a south-facing window, they're seeing things like lightening and darkening of the piece. It has a kind of breathing to it. 
earlier on, they were seeing things like subtle shifts in the blooms of salt that grow on the piece or parts of the piece appearing to rust as they encountered humidity. You must get very tired of dealing with institutional accessions committees. You know, actually, I love it so much. (laughs) I've had the best experiences with conservators. The ones that talk to me anyways, love playing around with my work. And I'll oftentimes Mm -hmm. send them, you know, strips and samples so that they can do their light tests and try to figure out the best way to store them. And then there's this really cool sort of circle of, of almost friends in the conservation world where once one of them figures something out, you can just connect the other conservators with them and they always know who the other one is and they're always willing to share. That's pretty cool. I have to ask a couple art history questions because I'm a giant nerd. As I'm sure you know, there is within Western photography, Western of North American photography, a tremendous tradition of interest in where the Pacific meets California. And of course, you lived in, in, in California for a while and went to grad school in California. So that's a tradition that goes back to Carlton Watkins, who instigated it in 1863, Edward Moybridge, lighthouses up and down the California coast, you know, through to Dorothea Lang and Wynne Bullock and Weston and Ansel Adams and, and on and on. I am not hearing that you're much pictorially interested in them or anyone else. But did any of that history or tradition of photographers and where North America meets the Pacific itself interest you or, or motivate you, maybe, maybe is a better word? Yeah, you know what most interested me and I think to a degree had a pretty large influence on a series of work I made was Moybridge's motion studies. And you made a whole body of work called? Yes, yeah. Called Moybridge, Moybridge. Tides. That's right. And what I grabbed onto about that work was this way that photography shaped a worldview, that it changed our understanding, that it showed us what we could not see with the naked eye, and then led us to understandings of how we maneuver our bodies through through the physical world. That's interesting. Because, you know, in a way, the some of that work that American Western photographers were making was about how, you know, the end of moving through the physical world because you got to the ocean and the implications that had for the American project. And of course the American project then quickly found that no longer a barrier and became imperial across the Pacific. But that's another story for another time. So when I first started making the literal drift work, I was at the Headland Center for the Arts in Sausalito, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And quite literally, the studio was perched on the edge of the continent. And there was this way that I was looking at that edge, that meeting place that so many other people have also considered and like feeling the massiveness of the space of the continent behind me. And then also that vastness of the water in front of me. And I was very interested in the way that that boundary, that shoreline is in constant motion. It's constantly renegotiating space. And it's it's never actually like a clear, firm boundary or delineated zone. It's it's always in, in transition. Finally, and I had this in my notes, not knowing you'd been raised Catholic. So the, 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 this answer may or may not go back to your discussion of that. But you quite often work in diptych or triptych or 
you know, quad tip, quad, you know, other, other, yeah, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Why is that form useful and interesting to you? I mean, it's a form that photographers have embraced as the years go on, but it's very much originally a painting form. Sure. So that form is attractive to me for a few reasons. I think there's this way that it almost references film where there's this kind of cinematic reference of like this frame, this frame, this frame. So kind of tying that into the way I was thinking about, say, the Moybridge pieces or movement or action. I think that breaking the pieces up into triptychs kind of gives this sense of moving through space and uses that negative space between the elements of the piece for a, a just a subtle visual pause and then the viewer can be pulled back in. So it's this way that I like to encourage a sort of dynamic viewing. And then I also use polyptics out of necessity. The large grids that I make that are 20 feet tall, you know, 15 feet wide, whatever, larger than that. I just don't have paper that big. <laughs> so <laughs> the limitations of material encouraged me to think about, well, how else might I do it? And so oftentimes I'm going out into the landscape with 64 pieces of 19 by 24 inch paper tacked together with tape and a hope that some of them will remain in place when a wave hits. That is a cool idea to finish on. Megan Rebenhoff, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Michelle White joins me to discuss Nikki de Sant Fall in the 1960s, which is at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego through July 17th. The exhibition examines two of Sant Fall's most important bodies of work, the tears or shooting paintings and the sculptures of women that Sant Fall called nanas. White co-curated the exhibition with Jill Dawsey. The excellent exhibition catalog, and wow, the period photographs in it are something else, 
was co-published by MCA San Diego and the Menil Collection, which originated the exhibition, and it's distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for about 50 bucks. Michelle White, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. What were Nikki de Saint-Fall's tears, and when did she begin making them? That's a great question to start with, and really how our exhibition starts. So she started making the tears in 1961, and essentially the tears are works that she made by taking some type of firearm, most often a 22 caliber rifle, and opening fire against a surface of a painting. Most often she would use an assortment of everyday materials, like an assemblage of found everyday objects, often mixed with plaster. And embedded in that surface, she would put bags or jars of pigment. So when she shot at the work of art, shot through the white plaster surface, the results were an incredible, robust rainbow of paint that splattered and dripped on the surface. Let me try to be clearer about one element of the production, as it were. So those mixtures of bags of paint and plaster and objects, did she compose them into, you know, in, in, in the way a painter might typically compose a painter painting? Yes, certainly. It was very thoughtful from the beginning as she arranged the composition. So she often would start working flat on a board, arranging the bags of pigment, arranging the found material. And we also know in early instances of the shooting paintings, she would also frequently use food. So soft spaghetti, raw eggs, tomatoes even. So during the performance, when there was typically an audience present, it wasn't just a rainbow of pigment that was splattering across the surface when that bullet pierced the skin of the work, but an array of food stuff, which which we can only imagine would have heightened the drama of watching the production of the tears. And sometimes scent as well, no doubt. <laughs> yes. I should pause here to note that the catalog is, so, so not only are surviving tears in the show, of course, but the catalog is ridiculously rich with archival images, both black and white and color, of all of this. Shooting composition of the stuff that would be shot, all of it. Catalog's amazing. <laughs> Go get Thank the catalog. Thank you. That is such an important part of the book as we were conceiving it, that normally like a chronology of all of St. Paul's known shooting performances, you might typically see that at the back of the book. We wanted to start the book that way because we recognized how little has been documented and discussed in terms of those performance and how fundamental they are to sort of setting the stage for this entire decade of her work. At the risk of asking the most banal question imaginable, why on earth did Saint-Fall decide to make works with a gun and by shooting at stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that is the question. So there's various origin stories, but let's start at the beginning as she was you know, forming her understanding of her practice in the late 1950s. At the time, especially while she was working in Paris, the artist Jackson Pollock was certainly on everyone's minds. Uh, this was a time when Pollock was introduced to French audiences for the first time. But it wasn't just in France. We could say this moment in the late 
1950s was when so many artists were thinking about the legacies of abstract expressionism and the legacies of Jackson Pollock. And Nikki de Saint-Fal was right there thinking through this. So in fact, when she first did, when she did her first shooting performance in 61, the art critic Pierre Restini saw it and he immediately compared it to a new Jackson Pollock. Like this was the legacy of Jackson Pollock. And that's why he invited her to join the avant-garde circle of the nouveau realists that year. So in one way we can see the shooting, the gesture of shooting, the gesture of making these colorful abstract paintings with a gun in that vein. We could also certainly think about someone like Alan Capra, who's thinking about performance and the body in relationship to abstraction as, as the sort of future of, or as the legacy of, of Jackson Pollock in terms of painting. So the gun and the sort of gesture of using the gun essentially as a paintbrush is within that larger art historical conversation. It's of the moment. But two, and related to that, just prior to this moment when St. Fall decides to use a gun, she had made a series of works, portraits essentially, made of her former lovers, her ex-boyfriends, where the face was a dartboard. And when she first installed these works, she placed in front of the portraits a table with darts and the audience could line up and essentially you know, lodge sharp objects into the face of former lovers. And this work is such an early, early instance of participatory art. And so kind of on the forefront of how artists were not only thinking of painting and the legacy of Pollock, but performance and participation. So it certainly makes sense that her next step after asking people to lodge a dart into the work of art is to essentially hand them a gun, which happens just months after those works are completed. Listeners may remember hearing Sophie Call talk about those dartboard works um, on the show a number of years ago. And I think it's easy to see some Sophie Call coming out of, of those works. Something you mentioned a moment ago about Pollock, as you note in the catalog, Another reason why Pollock would have been on the brain at this moment in the late 50s was he had just died. He dies in 1956 at the age of 44. So you mentioned the the tears in particular as an engagement with Pollock and Ab X. But one of the core tenets or conceptual underpinnings of the works is the way in which Sam Fall embraces chance. You know, once you shoot that gun and once the bullet hits something on the artwork and process, you don't know what's going to happen. So Dada was a generation or two in the past at this point. Does it still hold Sam Fall's interest or is her interest in chance and engagement with it coming from somewhere else? It's fun to note that when John Ashbury was reviewing her first exhibition of these works, because of that chance-based element, he called her an American Dadaist, which I think is a really apt way of describing how you might have experienced watching the, the works in process as they were shot. But I think for St. Fall, it was more about a critique of painting, more about critique of, by extension, notions of masculine violence. As far as chance goes, 
what's really important to note about St. Paul is one, what we already talked about, that she very carefully constructed these compositions. She knew where those bags of pigment were hidden. So when she did take the gun, when works were made by the artist and not necessarily the audience, we do know she was a particularly a good shot. So, and you, you, you can certainly tell after spending time with a lot of the shooting paintings that she certainly knew what she was doing and where to lodge that bullet in many instances. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that Ashbery comment because I, in reading the catalog, decided it was wrong <laughs> because chance was much more of a part of the European Dadaist tradition than it was the New York or American Dadaist tradition. And it comes into the European Dadaist tradition, you know, at the beginning of Dada. So by the time Dada and Duchamp and the rest get to New York, like that component of it is kind of gone. All of which brings me to, at least I think it is, all of which brings me to this question of whether St. Fall is French or American or if it matters, period. Does it, question mark? Or can she be both? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was really the argument that Jill Dossi, my co-curator, and I really wanted to explore in the book and the show that can you essentially be on both sides of the Atlantic and can your work be engaged in conversations on both sides and and certainly what we wanted to explore is her relationship to so many American avant-garde artists specifically Robert Rauschenberg at a time when when artists like Rauschenberg were spending so much time in Europe so much time exhibiting in these really sort of key shows, exploring sort of new tenets of art making aligned with chance, aligned with performance, aligned with participatory art. So it's a great question and a, a key key question to the book and the show. Is her use of guns and her, I don't know if references is the right word, but her engagement with violence an address of the United States or of France or of neither? I think it's both, but it's certainly very American. And she wrote extensively about this. St. Paul grew up in New York City. She went to high school there. She calls the Metropolitan Museum of Art her first teacher, right, of art. So right from the get-go, she's certainly aware of the relationship between masculinity, violence, and guns in the United States. And you'll see throughout a lot of her ephemera and her early writings, uh, conversations around sort of cowboy culture. So yes, this is a very American understanding. And, you know, certainly for St. Fall, and I'm sure we'll get to her representation of the female body in a moment, but also her use of a gun, these sort of key themes of her work from this moment are so relevant to conversations today. So yes, guns, violence, masculinity, and the United States are at the core of her early shooting paintings. We have mentioned collaborations a couple times without really talking about how collaboration became core to these works and then core to other sculptural works like her Nana's later in, in terms of how audiences are engaged to engage with them. And I should note that in the catalog, often, at least always with the tears and, and, and sometimes in other works, collaborations are individually listed, complete with lists of known participants and attendees, which is 
like all the best nerdy fun. So why did she begin working with, if that's the right phrase, working with collaborators? And what did she learn? What did she and the work learn or gain from it? I love the list of participants. It is absolutely illuminating. And I'm glad you pointed that out. We worked very hard on that aspect of the research. And the list of participants was essential because it demonstrates from the very beginning, from that first shooting performance, this isn't about the artist shooting with a gun. It's about inviting others to shoot with a gun. And that goes back to this, again, this larger conversation happening in the arts of the time about a more dynamic, participatory relationship between the art, the artist process, and the viewer who was who suddenly no longer just in a passive position. And we also need to see the fact that, which you can see looking at a lot of the archival images in the book, how many men were involved in, in taking these shots. And that certainly became something that St. Paul was deeply aware of as a sort of tool of critique, as a way of sort of demonstrating by asking male participants to take a shot against the sort of surface of this rarefied masculine surface of painting was certainly an early feminist gesture. So how did these shooting events, if you will, migrate from private collaborations to public performances, such as the one at the Made Man Playhouse in New York in, I think, 1962. So in general, I mean, we could say that St. Fall, with a few exceptions, really only did the tears or shooting paintings between 1961 and 63. It's an incredibly short period of time. But during that time, she did a lot of these performances. And they quickly evolved. It started, you know, with shootings that were happening outside of her Paris studio with friends and colleagues, but always documented for the most part. And it became such a sensation. In 1961, the year she starts making these shooting paintings, we know she was in over 50 newspaper articles around the world. Like, people loved it. She was on David Brinkley. She often was, she was in movie phone. So the reels playing before movies. And it was all sort of this tone. Oh, you just can't believe it. This female artist is making paintings with a gun. So she really became a media sensation, for lack of a better word. And because of this, the audiences grew. And it really culminated when she went to Los Angeles in the in 1962-63, where she did two performances outside, one on the Sunset Strip, one in the hills of Malibu, that became quite kind of a a sensation, quite a high-profile event. And at the time, she even started to wear a shooting costume, like a white jumpsuit with black patent leather boots, where she for most of those examples, was the sole shooter. So she would shoot these very large tableaus in front of an audience. So again, another reason why that chronology is so important, where we wanted to document as much as we could every instance of the shootings, because it shows that she's not only doing them in private to make objects, to present, she's doing it with friends and family, she's doing it in front of large audiences. She's doing it just in front of the camera, for example, for a television show. There's a lot of uh, different ways she's approaching 
audience and participation throughout this series. There is a lot I want to add slash fill in because it's so wildly entertaining. So speaking of Pollock, the Made Man Playhouse performance slash object making was photographed by Hans Namath, who of course is most famous for his photographs of Pollock. In Los Angeles, photographs were made of the work slash performance by a number of people, among them Dennis Hopper, speaking to what you, you mentioned before about her kind of celebrity status. And then in terms of her costume, her self-costuming, she also happily, and appears from a photograph in the catalog, gleefully posed in kind of like a classic but fake Annie Oakley cowgirl, stereotypical, holding a six-shooter type pose. <laughs> so it's like the further one dives in, the more entertaining all this gets. Uh, one other element before moving on from the the tears, you know, you mentioned that there were food and all kinds of, you know, a, a paint in, in balloons and, and, and plastic containers and all that, all of which is still in the work. So how have these things lived and uh, as, as objects that have needed continuing care or in the case of one Paris collector cited in the catalog, kind of resisting continuous care and instead the artwork, you know, decades later imprinting itself upon that collector's home. <laughs> yes, that was a great story. I learned from a collector in Paris that, you know, she wasn't just embedding bags of paint and jars of paint. In some cases, actual aerosol cans she would sort of lodge a bullet into to create a really lovely spray effect. But in this instance, one of the aerosol paint cans was not punctured in the performance, but spontaneously exploded decades later in the living room of a collector's house. So it wasn't for lack of care. It was simply that these works continue to sort of move and change and live. And they, from the get-go, a conservation term we used was inherent vice. So they're crumbly. There's bags that sort of still pop out. So, I mean, thank you for bringing this aspect of these works up because it really became a huge obstacle in the exhibition planning because so many of these works live in Europe, not the United States, not only showing them safely, but shipping them overseas was quite an ordeal. And I want to publicly thank as much as I can so many institutions who agreed to lend these in recognition of the importance of this show, because they certainly sent these works to us aware that they do live and breathe and change is inevitable. But I certainly think, Tyler, that a lot of these works that are showing now in San Diego may never come back to the United States because of how fragile they are. The major body of work that Sandfall made more or less after the tears are her nanas. And so before we talk about them, kind of what are they and what art historical tradition, of course, are they engaging and upturning and opening and doing all kinds of things with? So the nanas are female figures, most often three-dimensional, that St. Paul began to make in 1964, first showing them in 1965 in Paris. And in 63, she essentially declares she's done with the shooting paintings and she is moving on. And she moves on to these joyous, often large representations of the female body. And in the exhibition, and as you might see in the catalog, it at first seems like 
a crazy rupture. We go from these sort of violent shooting paintings, stop, and then start with these colorful, joyous, round female bodies sort of frolicking in space. But for the artist, just like the traditions of painting, the traditions of abstract expressionism, she was also looking to art history. And of course, one of the most well-known representational subjects in Western art history is the female body, the bathing beauty, the nude. And so she turned to that topic, much like the shooting paintings, to think about liberating their past and freeing them from that history. So it seems like, like a pretty hard right turn to go from this one body of work to the next and so quickly. Are there links or relationships between them that, that either St. Fall made or that you've made in working on the work? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know what? It's been one of our number one questions, especially how the exhibition's been presented in Houston and San Diego that were really sort of dividing these aspects of her work. It really kind of also divides this decade of her production. But again, just like the history of abstract painting, she's dealing with a traditional subject matter in art. But two, we can also think about this idea of the shooting paintings being sort of a gesture of dismantling the patriarchy, quite literally, right? By violently shooting the surface of the history of painting. And in her declaration that she's she's done with this, she is moving on. Sometimes I often think about it as, you know, she's she's essentially dismantled and killed the patriarchy. So once you do that, what's next? What do you have to build? have to build a matriarchy. And certainly as St. Paul started creating these female figures, she saw them as this new matriarchal society, as sculptures that could occupy a space and be read as a kind of new order, a a matriarchal presence uh, that certainly stood in contrast to the sort of traditions she was addressing quite critically just years before. I guess before I ask this next question, I should ground the listener in some sense of when we're taping. We're taping at the end of June, a few days after the Republican Party in the United States has ended Roe versus Wade, which gave women in the United States certain legal access to abortion, healthcare decisions, and autonomy over their own bodies. St. Falls. Nanas all often engage birth and, and childbirth, both in representing uh, children in one or two of them and foregrounding the birth canal in other works. And in terms of kind of upturning art history, one of the things they do for me anyway is they upturn art history's long, I mean, centuries-long fascination with Mary and Jesus and, of course, the myth of Immaculate Conception how does St. Fall evolve or, or grow or build the nanas into an address of, of childbirth? It's a great question. Um, and especially because I'll say her very first nana, what she considers her first representation, is the drawing in the exhibition. And the nanas are, are from the beginning, inspired by pregnancy. Her friend Clarice Rivers, who was married to The painter Larry Rivers uh, was pregnant and St. Fall drew her along with Larry Rivers. So it's a collaborative portrait in the exhibition. So the Nana's from the beginning in how she was thinking about the sort of 
undulating forms of the female body was based on being inspired by her pregnant good friend. And just prior to creating the Nanas and the Round Two, she did do a series called The Goddesses, The White Goddesses, which are birthing figures. And that's, you know, the violent violence, the body, the female body in particular were key themes in her work. So the, the idea of pregnancy is always there. And the idea of female agency is always there. 1964 is the very, very beginnings of what we now understand as feminist art during second wave feminism. Uh, And St. Paul was there at the very, very beginning. I often use the example of Yoko Ono's cut piece. That's 1964. That's a performance, of course, that we often associate with one of the earliest instances of feminist performance art. And if we think about St. Paul shooting paintings, if we think about the sort of emergence of these radical female bodies, she's certainly at the fore of these conversations. One of the things I noticed in looking through the catalog about these works from later in the 60s, as opposed to earlier in the 60s, is that I think Sandfall's palette is really, really different. Now, that may be, you'd know better than I would, and I guess that's sort of what my question is. Is the palette as different in, in the Nanas as in the, the Tears, or, or is it that maybe conservation things have happened to the color in the Tears? Is there, is there a difference, an evolution in palette that Sandfall migrates toward as she changes subject matter as the decade goes on? Yes, conservation issues certainly affect my answer here. The earliest nanas, which we've installed in the exhibition to essentially emulate how she exhibited them at her first show in 1965, those early nanas are primarily made with a lot of paper and collage with resin. So what's happened over time is they've sort of dramatically yellowed and faded. So what we understand is most of the nanas as they were conceived when she first made them, did have a fairly colorful rainbow palette, um, much like the shooting paintings. Oh, so the pa- the, 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 the shooting paintings were originally perhaps much brighter, and then she kind of stayed consistently bright in her palette throughout, which is kind of the exact opposite of what I'd originally thought. Correct. And that is just time and age. And the earliest nanas, the ones that you might be referring to from 64, 65, were just made with more fragile materials. And again, Tyler, this is like one of the very first exhibitions to focus on this aspect of her career. Many of these works have never been exhibited before. They haven't necessarily undergone treatment like many other works of art would have had to keep them looking as fresh as they should. So that is often simply the effect of age. But yes, the the rainbow palette is fairly consistent, I'll say, with a few exceptions within the tears when she only used black and white. Michelle White, thanks so much. Of course, it was such a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.